2: By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
1: This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, My guest today is the fabulous Maren McKenna. She's been on the show for, I don't know, it must be almost 10 years you've been coming onto the show to talk about a variety of topics that are of great interest to me, especially antibiotic resistance. Um, But Maren McKenna, for those of you who have not listened to her on this show in the past, uh, she is a journalist and an author specializing in public health, global health, and food policy. Uh, She is a senior fellow of the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University, where she teaches health and science writing and storytelling and media literacy. Her books are Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats, Superbug, The Fatal Menace of MRSA, and Beating Back the Devil on the Front Lines with the Disease Detectives of the Epidemic Intelligence Service. That was your first book, wasn't it, Maren? I was like 2003 or four? I think
3: it was 2004. And yes, and thank you for mentioning all three of them. Yeah, of course. And, and you were
1: like 12 when you wrote that, right? Something
0: so- <laughs> like that.
1: Um, because you'd be amazed that the girl looks like she's no older than, I don't know, 35. I mean, not that it matters, but still, it's like kind of amazing how much you've accomplished. Um, she, uh, Marin is a senior writer for Wired. So if you don't follow her at Wired, people uh, do so now because it's always a good time. Um, and her articles have appeared as well in the New York Times Magazine, The New Republic, The Atlantic, National Geographic. Well, I could go on for another paragraph, but I will spare you. Um, you can go to her website and look up all the cool things that she has done in the course of her uh, distinguished Career, Maren. Thank you so much for joining us today um, to talk about the avian flu. Another subject near and dear to both of our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me back. You're very welcome. So, um, what prompted me to contact you was a uh, February, I think, 17th piece in Wired about avian influenza, uh, the current outbreak, and the longer term implications of this virus. So, just for starters, can you remind listeners how does avian flu work? It's not as obvious as it might seem. So for the first thing I want to say is, that, is thank you for reading
3: my stories. And the second <laughs> is that it happens that on the day that we're speaking, right. I just published an update in Wired about the latest news with regard to avian flu. So I'm, what we're going to be talking about today and what I'm going to talk to you about today are, yeah. are not just the things that I published in February, but also some new news that's been published just now in the first few days of Wired. I'm excited.
1: So, I can't wait to so, hear about
3: it. avian flu. There is this virus, influenza. We're all familiar with it because if we don't get our flu shots, we are vulnerable to getting flu. And flu can be a really terrible disease. People get a little sniffle and they think, oh, I've got the flu. In fact, they probably just have a cold. If you have the flu, you'll know it because you'll feel like you were run over by a large truck. Yes, (laughs) And periodically, and... No one is really sure how often this happens because we don't have good enough records to really be predictive. But every couple of decades, let's say, that winter infection of flu in humans boils up into a pandemic. Mm. And before the coronavirus came along, flu was considered to be the most likely candidate for a pandemic among humans. Looking back to 1918, which that I think still is the worst health disaster ever, but COVID is creeping up on it. So everyone thought flu would, a novel strain of flu would spread rapidly around the world and kill lots and lots and lots of people. Now, the reason that that's important, even though we're here to talk about birds, is that flus, many strains of flus, affect many different species. Mm. But it happens that flus that affect us can be traced back to flus that affect birds. Wild waterfowl are the natural host of some flu strains. And for people who are old like me, they might remember (laughs) that a a novel flu strain jumped from birds into humans in Hong Kong in 1997. Mm -hmm. And it sickened 18 people it killed six of them, so that's a mortality rate of that's, one third. That's pretty yeah, that's high. pretty high. Yeah, and the only reason that that outbreak was stopped was that the then territory of Hong Kong killed every chicken in the territory, oh. which was about one point four million chickens, and that yeah. stopped H five N one avian flu from spreading further in humans and causing very serious disease. Now it didn't stop it forever. Because in about 2003, H5N1, which is not really a single strain, but more like a category of strains, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: arose again in North Vietnam and began spreading around the world. And periodically since then, it has been both infecting birds and also jumping into humans. And to this point, and we're now more than 20 years out. Yeah. About 850 people have been known to be infected with H5N1 avian flu spread from a bird, and a little more than half of them have died. So Mm. again, small numbers, high mortality rate, something that would be very concerning if it kept going, not just from bird to human, but from human to human to human. So that's and that's what, the big scare, right? That's, that's what the big people scare. are worried about. And and that's why a lot of people care about flu is that sort of monster under the bed in the background <laughs> that someday right. a pandemic might arise. But people in agriculture or people like you and me who care about the food supply know that there's another effect of these strains moving around the world. And that is that they have become increasingly severe in their impact, both on wild birds, which didn't used to happen, and Mm -hmm. also on domesticated birds, various kinds of chickens, turkeys, ducks. And here in the US, since January a year ago, a highly pathogenic, very dangerous, fast-moving, extremely uh, illness-making form of H5N1, avian flu, has been spreading across the country and just decimating poultry flocks and also species of wild birds. The ornithologists that I spoke to for the story that published this morning are incredibly concerned about the impact on wild bird populations, which is something that is much harder to to measure than if you have an entire house of chickens that are confined and you can see that they're all taken out by the flu. People are starting to talk about a second silent spring. That's how severe the species loss is.
1: Wow. Because typically, let's go back for a second, typically a wild bird is immune to the the virus. In other words, they, they carry it They shed it through their feces or respiratory uh, secretions, um, but they themselves don't normally get sick. But in this case... They have been getting sick and they have been dying, the wild bird population. Uh,
3: That's a a good way to say it in a short form. There's a whole bunch of complicated influenza virology behind that about when flu is low pathogenic and when it's high pathogenic and Mm -hmm. wild waterfowl usually carried the low pathogenic form and basically pooped it out all over the world as they were migrating. Um, And now it seems that the
1: high pathogenic form is actually being, it is infecting birds and taking them out. Incredible. And of course, there's going to be another mass migration as birds move from the southern to the northern hemisphere again, which may further, uh, you know, have further implications both on the industry, but also on the wild population, right? Right. And we are, of course, in the beginning of the
3: migratory season right now. Yeah, exactly. And um, there's some interesting biology behind that as well. I was talking to a wildlife biologist the other day who said, you know, When birds are on the move in the spring, they tend to move pretty fast Mm -hmm. because the the desire to breed is has a has a great deal of control over their behavior. Right. But when they're how unusual. (laughs) But when they're migrating in the fall, they kind of are more leisurely about it. And they might stop more places. And when they stop, if they stop on a pond, and if that pond is on a farm, it's more likely that they are going to pass that pass that flu strain that they are carrying on to local wildlife or local poultry. So for any for anything that we see in the spring with regard to bird flu being passed among birds there is some concern that the fall is always going to be a, a larger wave and things are pretty bad now
1: wow scary so let's just to give people a sense of what we're talking about here do you have numbers on how many birds have been you know either infected and or called i mean it's cuz as we all know the egg prices have basically doubled And that is largely because egg-laying birds seem to be particularly susceptible. So what kind of numbers are we talking about here, given the size of our industry? So the World Organization for Animal Health,
3: which is a UN agency comparable to the World Health Organization for Humans, estimated recently that in this most recent wave, more than 140 million poultry worldwide either have died from the virus or have been slaughtered to keep it from spreading.
1: Right. Wow. 140 million. Now, in the wow. United
3: States, and this is, again, in a, in a span of about 13, 14 months, we're talking something like 60 million yeah. broilers, broiler breeders, laying hens, turkeys, um, domesticated ducks, mm-hmm. either killed or slaughtered. Well, to put and it in
1: perspective, our our poultry population for broilers is like nine billion, right? With a B. That's right, and so it's it. it
3: you know, there's a way in which you can look at these numbers and say, well, you know, the de- if the denominator is nine billion, and that's right. just meat chickens, that doesn't take in turkeys, ducks, and laying hens, right? Um, then, then maybe this is not so bad. But on the other hand, it is a ferocious amount of both animal suffering and yeah. also food waste. And yeah. we've seen, uh, you know, we, the, this winter, we've seen the impact of that uh, in supermarkets because sure egg has. prices at the end of, in December, 2022, egg prices were more than 200% higher than the year before. And that's because last year, avian flu and steps to control it took out almost a third of the laying hens in the United States.
1: Wow. Now, just to digress for a second, is the reason that laying hens are particularly susceptible to this because uh, because of their genetic makeup? Because of course, they're bred. You know, their genetics have been monkeyed with so that they produce you know many more eggs than any normal laying bird ever did before. Or is it because they are housed in such great concentration? or is it because they live longer than a a meat bird, which typically only has a lifespan of about six weeks?
3: So these are all really great questions, and they're things that that the industry is actually talking about right now, because you're right. In this past year, in the United States, the greatest impact of this current avian flu, the the technical term is panzootic, which is a pandemic that happens among animals, Mm -hmm. um, was on laying hens, and on turkeys. So there's a Mm. couple of nuances here. The first is that every type of poultry, broadly defined, that we grow in the United States is grown under different conditions. So people have probably seen pictures of the barns that, which are called houses in the industry that broilers are raised in, which are football field length, solid Mm. walled metal sheds with big fans either in the sidewall or at one end. So there's no Mm. outdoor access unless they are free-range. I'm not talking here about free-range or organic birds.
1: Right. Turkeys,
3: on the other hand... Oh, and that that house can... A a typical broiler house might hold maybe 30,000 birds. Mm -hmm. That's right. Turkeys in the United States are not raised in solid-walled barns. They are raised in what are called curtain barns, which is something like a half-wall with... Uh Field mesh curtains that come down from the roof. And there are smaller numbers of turkeys. It's not tens of thousands, but it might be thousands in a, a turkey mm-hmm. house. Laying hens, on the other hand, their houses are enormous. And on a laying hen property, a large laying hen property such as mm-hmm. exists in Iowa, mm-hmm. there can be millions of oh. birds on a single property. Now that might be a couple of houses. It's not necessarily that 5 million birds are going to be in a single building, but they are <laughs> there right. in incredible concentrations. So that's one thing. So, so you can imagine that with those different styles of houses and those different concentrations of birds, both the demands on biosecurity, on keeping doing the things that keep a virus out of your property or out of your barns are going to be different depending on whether a sparrow can get in or whether right. there are a thousand birds versus a million birds. So that's one thing. Yep. The second thing is that kind of inherent in that the, that the design of the industry in which different different species or different va- varieties of birds are housed in and grown in different ways is that, as you said, they also live for different amounts of time. Now, the classic broiler that we all eat, the the meat chicken,
1: yep.
3: is mostly slaughtered by forty two days old.
1: Right? right, so they're not
3: around very long to right. um, to be. Uh, Infected with something, <clears throat> just the the probability. It's it certainly exists there, but they're just not going to be around that long. Turkeys right. take about six months to get to market weight. Uh huh. Again, these these are sort of. I'm, I'm talking here about kind of standard commodity. Yeah, your varieties, right? Not not um, heritage birds, not the kind of of birds that are grown organic or free range. Those literally can be different varieties of poultry with different metabolic demands and different appearance and so forth. Now, laying hens, whether it's a hen that's laying eggs for market or a hen that's laying the eggs that are going to become the broilers, those are called broiler breeders, You can't can't really get a hen to lay an egg before it's about 26 weeks old. Uh And then their laying life is 30 to 50 weeks. So we're talking about a bird that lives a year and a half. Right, And it happens that over the past year, turkeys on the one hand and laying hens on the other hand, which both live longer than broilers seem to have been hit the hardest. Now this may have been, this may be artifactual because on the one hand, layers are in barns in those enormous concentrations. So once a virus gets in, it can really get going. And on the other hand, turkeys are kind of well known in the industry for not having very robust immune systems. And so it may be that they are uniquely vulnerable in addition to being grown in barns that are possibly more difficult to make fully biosecure. Mm. But the, 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 so so bubbling under this vast concern about the advance of bird flu is the question of, are the ways that this very large industry has historically grown all these animals that represent protein, do those, do those still work? Or do right. they have to change things in various ways? And there is a, a segment of critics of the industry, and I wrote about this about a month ago, who are saying, look, We know you've tried your best, but you ought to be able to see by now that biosecurity is just not going to work for you anymore, that you cannot make your properties secure enough against a virus to protect your birds unless you make them so sealed that you start to bump up against animal welfare. Now, even in the broiler industry, animal welfare has been getting better. There are certain companies (laughs) like Purdue that actually have been working on things like reducing the amount of antibiotics that they give their birds and giving the birds natural light and giving them enrichment so they can exercise mm-hmm. and things like that. But, you know, if the the most, the way to keep a bird safe is to grow it in as sealed and sterile a situation as possible, mm-hmm. you can see how that would would militate against like Giving them some bales of hay to jump on, or oh or sure, making sure that they've got got more fresh air. So there's a lot of conflicts in uh,
1: a lot of competing factors that are making this very difficult to tackle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it can't just be. It really does make you well. Anyway, we'll go on, but it does. It absolutely it does beg the question of, you know, breaking up uh, this system into at least smaller units. So that you don't have to slaughter, you know, five hundred thousand birds at a go, because you're you know housing them in barns where there are twenty or fifty thousand at a time. So I don't know. I'm not an expert, but you know that just seems like a basic concept there. But uh, boy, the, well, what is it? Co- what, what, what what kind of costs are we talking about here? What kind of economic losses just to put that into? the mix of why we maybe need to switch up the way we grow poultry in this country. But do you have any figures, Maren, about like what is a contract farmer who loses his, you know, entire... Okay, say you pointed out before the show that that an egg-laying bird... Is not the, is, that system is not the same as the contract growers that I talk about a lot on this show uh, who grow lay, uh, meat birds. So laying birds are typically owned by the big company, say it's Cal Maine, I think, is the biggest egg producer in the country. Um, so what kind of losses are they sustaining um, when they have to cull you know, 68 million birds? So we're still in
3: the midst of this current wave Mm-hmm. but the and right. but but we can start to estimate what the impact is going to be by looking back at the last wave that was significant and that was in 2015 right. <clears throat> when avian flu again H5N1 landed mostly in the midwest and mostly affected turkey farmers. And I went to some turkey farms that had been depopulated at the time Mm -hmm. um, that belonged to West Liberty Foods, which is a farmer owned cooperative in Western Iowa. Mm -hmm. And um, when you count the value of birds lost and uh, on infected properties, and then the value of birds lost in the sort of like bullseyes, bullseye rings around those, because USDA planning for epizootics calls for slaughtering out a certain distance. And then on top of that, all the sort of tertiary losses to farm economies in small towns, because you're talking about, you know, if if you've depopulated your farm, then you don't need feed delivered and you don't need repairmen coming and your household income is probably less. So we're talking in the billions of dollars. There was a report by the USDA after action about a year after that outbreak uh, concluded. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was definitely in the billions. Now, it is important to say that there is a government indemnification program. You know, the, the way that we handle avian flu in the United States right now when it blows up big like this is uh-huh. that um, farmers are indemnified by the government. So the government comes along, arranges for their flocks to be slaughtered, uh-huh. and then they get paid back. Now, farmers will tell you that that first, the money comes late, and second, the money isn't enough. And yeah. that, of course, makes some people tempted to maybe not be as forthcoming coming as they ought to be, when they feel like the virus is headed in their direction. Uh, Because you can just imagine how terrifying this is. Sure. So I have not yet seen any uh, estimates of what this wave is going to cost us, Mm -hmm. but this is already worse than 2015. This current wave of avian flu just in the United States is the worst animal disease outbreak in the United States in our history.
1: Wow. We, well, on that note, we'll t- take a short break for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Marion McKenna to talk more about avian flu and its implications for both our food supply and
2: our future as humans. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our Heritage and Traditions, Master Cheesemaker Program, and the American Propensity for Innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. So Maren,
1: this is our worst avian flu outbreak. It outdoes our last one. Was that so the one in 2015, was that also H1N5? Am I saying that right, H1N5? It's, it's H5N1. H5N1, thank you. I knew I was doing that wrong. And I'm looking at kind, it and
3: saying it wrong. Flu is kind of an alphabet soup. Uh, yeah. And you know there, there are many flu strains, there are many types of flu. The strains are within the types. Um, the key thing to know, and it's just sort of a bit of flu trivia, but it might help people understand, is that the H stands for hemagglutinin. The N stands for neuraminidase, and what those are, <laughs> are proteins on the surface of the virus that okay. do particular things. One allows the virus to penetrate a cell and then reproduce, and the other allows the new daughter viruses to break free of the cell that it's just hijacked. Mm-hmm. But but because those are on the outside of the virus and they they control how the virus interacts with what its host is going to be, those H's and N's are used for typing, so there are something six. like sixteen H's and nine N's. I might have that. I'm, I might have that backwards. It might be the other way around. Anyway, there are lots and lots of flus, but H five N one that broad category within which there are many clades of flus has been the bad actor ever since 1997. Though what we are dealing with now is not the exact same virus as in 1997 because flu is unbelievably restless and Uh, promiscuous and it just mutates nonstop, which is why humans have to get flu shots every year is because the flu that comes around every year has changed a bit. And that's also true for avian flu. And that's important because... There's a lot of debate in the veterinary world and the protein world about, should we be responding in a different way? And the US government started to support after 2015, some explorations of whether it would be possible to vaccinate birds against flu. And there are some candidate vaccines stockpiled from 2016. But Uh because flu is so restlessly mutating, there's no guarantee that those vaccines from 2015, 2016 would still work today. That's a subset of the enormous discussion about whether to vaccinate birds at all, which you might want to talk about.
1: Well, I I do want to talk, I mean, I'm desperate to talk about that because of course we talked about before the show, there was a long piece in the times yesterday uh, about the government mulling this over. And, 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 and interestingly, it is not straightforward as one might imagine. I mean, of course, if you're, if you support vaccination programs in general, which I do, um, you know, you would think, well, of course it's a no brainer. I mean, yes, there's you know, nine billion broilers in this world. That's a lot of vaccines. It'll take you a while to get through all of those birds. I'm not quite sure how that would even be accomplished. Um, but uh, there are surprisingly uh, loud uh, voices of dissent, including the Natural uh, Poultry Producers Council, which is very anti-vaccination uh, for reasons of trade. And I wondered if you could talk for a second about that aspect of why... Um, a vaccine program might not be the best road to take. So
3: in defense of my own employer, I have to say that we have a story about bird flu vaccination this morning, March 8th, Mm -hmm. when when I am talking to you. Yes. Um, So on the surface, you would think that vaccination against bird flu in birds would be uncomplicated. Because after all, as we talked about a moment ago, humans take flu shots. We're supposed to take them every year. We have an industry devoted to reformulating those and distributing them. And also poultry get vaccinated against other diseases, either in the egg or um, in their first few days of life. So it's not as though vaccinating poultry per se is a thing that people object to. But here's the problem. The people might understand this by, by remembering some of the early disputes we had about the COVID vaccines when they came in, in I guess it was 2021, mm-hmm. um, that there's a difference between a vaccine preventing you from becoming infected, from acquiring a virus and being able to pass it on to someone else, and a vaccine that keeps you from getting sick. So you might actually be infected, but you don't actually develop symptoms. And that is a question that haunts the poultry industry.
1: Oh,
3: Because to this point, the way that you would vaccinate birds against avian flu is literally by giving them a shot. In fact, it might need to be two shots. And so if you imagine that you are faced with a a barn of 35,000 three-week-old broilers, what if you miss one or two? Yeah. Or what if they have an incomplete response? Or what if they actually were vaccinated and they become infected and they don't show symptoms, so you don't know that they're infected, but they can still pass the virus on? Because of this possibility that vaccination might not be 100%, and it might be possible either to keep allowing transmission or to hide within a vaccinated flock, birds that are not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. All around the world, the big poultry producing companies have been extremely reluctant to accept vaccinated birds in trade. And we have enormous vac- um, broiler trade in the United oh, yeah. States. It's billions of dollars. Oh yeah. Now, um, there are countries that are bigger than us. Brazil also doesn't vaccinate. China does. China has been vaccinating its poultry for a couple of years. Really? But it's a question of who is going to allow vaccinated birds across their borders? Who is going to take them in trade? And and at the moment, no one is willing to be the first country that steps forward. And in really? fact, I will say that, that the uh, ex, no, no one in the poultry industry will talk about this on the record at the moment, but <laughs> academic experts who are adjacent to the poultry industry are saying, look... <laughs> They're all talking about this because no one can see any other exit strategy right now Mm -hmm. because there is so much virus in the world. There's Mm -hmm. not not only so much virus in poultry, but there's so much more background virus because so many more wild populations are affected now than have been in the past that there's no way to get away from it, no matter how biosecure you make your properties. So what it would have to take to start vaccinating poultry is basically for everyone to agree and that's starting with the World Organization for Animal Health and coming down to to national governments and then coming down to production organizations <laughs> however they're constituted right. in the in various countries so in the United States that would be the National Chicken Council whom you mentioned and the US Poultry and Egg Association I've forgotten the formal name for the turkey producers but there are production organizations that that stretch across those industries so everyone would have to agree within a country and everyone would have to agree in those countries trading partners we're talking about something that has the scale if if not the formality of an international treaty everyone's got to say yes or and at this point most people are saying no there are only a few countries that routinely vaccinate and that's china and egypt and a a few others, but for the most part, they are places that do not have
1: huge foreign trade. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Fascinating. I mean, this, it's just, you know, there's never any simple answer to any problem, is there, especially when it comes to agriculture? Um, Can we talk, um, I don't want to take away from the work that you just published today, and, and since I haven't read it yet, I'll ask you to lead on that but but one of the things that um, was in your piece, uh, the first piece that I read in February is that this has this particular h five n one strain has in fact jumped from birds to mammals. and that's why you know people like you and the scientific community and the the industry itself are all sort of hitting the panic button. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, sort of without raising a pan. I mean, we don't have to worry that it's going to be a pandemic in the United in the human population just yet. Um, but as we've been discussing, viruses evolve. So, what are we looking at here with that? You know, with that in mind, and how is the CDC preparing for that?
3: So, I talked a couple of minutes ago about how flu is this just enormous thing, right? And there are yeah. flus that affect many different species. And many of those individual flu strains are uniquely adapted to their species. So they make a certain species sick, but they don't make another species sick. They make a bird sick, but not a mammal sick. You know, they make a dolphin sick, but not a pig sick. But right. there are certain, the, the, certain types of flu that seem to be better at crossing the species barrier. And that are, those are flus that affect birds and flus that affect pigs. And that has to do with the biology of the birds and the biology of the pigs and the biology of us that make us all vulnerable to each other's flu strains. And in that catastrophic first outbreak of avian flu H5N1 in Hong Kong in 1997, that was the first time that that particular strain had jumped from birds to humans. That's why it looked alarming. Mm -hmm. But what you... what. Is most worrisome is not that a flu strain just jumps the species barrier like you know a bowling ball accidentally popping into the next lane. <laughs> right. It's that the bowling ball keeps going across all the lanes. Uh, yeah. A hell of a throw. Um, so <laughs> if a if a flu strain not just jumps but then adapts in its restless mutation to its new host, whatever that new species is, and becomes more efficient. At affecting that new host and then being able to be passed on to other members of that new species, that's when things start to get worrisome. So here we have a, a fundamentally avian flu that, to this point, has jumped into humans 850 plus times, killed about mm-hmm. half of them. But almost all of those infections have been just bird to human, and then it stopped, was sort of a dead end. It, the flu did not evolve enough within that person to gain the ability to infect another human being and to keep going and keep going and keep going. That would be the the signal mm-hmm. that that something really nasty, nasty, like the beginning of a pandemic might be starting. Yeah. But in between birds and us are other mammals. Sure. And so this category of flu, H5N1, this strain effectively, but it has clades within it, has been infecting more and more mammals. And not just like a single mammal, but mm. large amounts of mammals. So the big, um, the, the, the very worrisome signals in the past couple of months have been that in January, on the coast of Peru, more than 600 sea lions were found dead of H5N1.
1: Oh, my. Flu.
3: So that it is unlikely that, I mean, it's possible but it's unlikely, that migrating birds individually infected every single sea lion in that colony. What is more likely is that the flu got into them and then evolved enough to, for them to infect each other. Similarly, H5N1 uh, last fall, but this was just made public last month, invaded a farm where minks were being grown for fur in Spain. Right. Now that might ring a bell to people because mink farms were also a problem in COVID. It turned out yes. that, that SARS-CoV-2 was particularly good at infecting minks and so both wild both farmed minks and then spreading into wild minks like really worrisome that SARS-CoV-2 is very good at finding alternate hosts. But mm-hmm. to return to flu. H5N1 flu got into this mink farm it was unclear whether the mink were only being infected by birds nearby or whether they were infecting each other. As a result, the entire farm was slaughtered, about 52,000 minks. Yeah. Now, what what what's going on in there as well is not just a mammal um, being infected by avian flu, but it's also a mammal that's being held in confinement, kind of analogous to the way that poultry are being held in confinement. Right. right? But... The sea lions were free living. I mean, they were just like flopping out on the beach and catching fish and doing the things that sea lions do in six hundred. But they love to
1: snuggle up. I mean, I watch a sea there's a seal colony right off the shore of where I live. And they snuggle up, man. Those guys are all piled together when they're taking a rest on the rocks. Yeah. So I can easily see how they would get be able to pass it from one to another. So
3: to be very anthropomorphic, you can, <laughs> and, and to to give to give um, the virus like agency and intention which it doesn't really have but yeah. it's sometimes hard not to anthropomorphize these things you can kind of think of avian flu as like a, a burglar who wants to get into your house <laughs> and it's and it's going around your house and testing every door and testing every window right. and checking the 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 air ducts and <laughs> you know whether any of the like flashing from your dryer is loose any vulnerability to get in. And these infections in poultry, in wild birds, in mammals, and some recent infections in humans are, there was a a girl who died in Ecuador a couple of months ago and a girl who died in Cambodia uh, just about, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, This is all, these all represent the flu virus, the H5N1 strain kind of tapping at the door. Of our world, you are and scaring me, girl. just just rattling, <laughs> rattling the doorknobs and checking the window locks, and yeah. you know someday one of those is going to give way
1: are are you feeling from your research uh, let me ask you this, and then we, we're going to have to wrap it up here, but uh, there was one question I had for you, which I know the flu is a virus, but I was wondering if your research between sort of antibiotic resistance, the development of superbugs, and our widespread use of antibiotics, uh, both in the human and in animal populations. Are these also contributing to the abilities of uh, these pathogens uh, to evolve in ways that outwit, you know, our best efforts at vaccination and so forth?
3: Well, flu doesn't become resistant to... um,
1: to, to an antibiotic. Vaccines. But does it have, have an bacteria. impact on the immune system that would allow uh, sort of better penetration by a virus? I'm well, straining I'm, here. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm,
3: that's, it's an interesting question that goes way beyond my knowledge, but I will say mm-hmm. this, that there are people, in in the part of you know who, who are concerned with antibiotic resistance, which just to remind listeners, it only affects bacteria, right? So bacteria yes. and viruses it's are virus things. Not a virus thing, right? Antibiotics right. only work against bacteria. If you have a viral infection, do not take antibiotics. It will not work. <laughs> Right. (laughs) It may, it may think that you may think that you feel better. That's either placebo effect or maybe sort of a little sort of general kind of um, inflammation reducing effect, but antibiotics will not make your flu better. Please do not take them. Right. But there are people who've been working on sort of the the meta picture of antibiotic use and antibiotic resistance for a long time Mm -hmm. who... Keep pointing back to the fact that we do not, we cannot separate ourselves from the microbial world. That right. anything we do with regard to deploying antibiotics affects the microbial world that we live in, um, in animals, in our bodies, in the environment. And as we've come to understand, we are ourselves microbial worlds, right? We have right. microbiomes. And when we take antibiotics, we affect those. Now, We affect them in some obvious ways, like if you take certain antibiotics for, you know, a respiratory infection or something like that, you might end up with diarrhea for a couple of days. That's because the antibiotic nuked your gut microbiome for a few days. But increasingly, as we deploy antibiotics, we're doing things not only within our bodies, but also on our bodies and to our environment in a way that is just changing the competence Uh, the microbial competence of the world to deal with threats, does that have an impact on how flu can affect populations? Is there something going on in the microbiomes of poultry Mm. that are affected by, that are vulnerable to flu? I don't think anybody has done that research. It's an interesting speculation, but we are way beyond my knowledge at this point.
1: Right, right. No, I mean, I understand it's speculation, but it's just something to think about because, I mean, your work has been so important when it comes to raising the red flags about uh, excessive use of antibiotics. And, you know, the more we have learned about the impact on the microbiome, as you point out, um, you know, the more it makes me wonder, it's like, it's sort of the, um, I don't know, what is the analogy I'm looking for? Uh, it's the, you know, we're killing the goose that lays the golden, golden egg. I don't know. But, we're you know, we're sort of like, as we deplete the effectiveness of our antibiotics, we're also at the same time making ourselves, I think, so much more vulnerable to so much greater range of uh, possibilities for infection. Um, it just sort of makes sense to me that even though a virus and a bacteria are obviously a very different organism, uh, if you sort of reduce your overall ability to withstand those infections um, through these superbugs that are being created, as well as our sort of general depletion of our, our own defenses. Uh, it just makes sense to me that, you know, we become more and more vulnerable even to a virus, despite its the lack of connection to antibiotic use. Um, and Marin, is there anything else you wanted to say about the article you published today, since we didn't really get to review that thoroughly? So the one thing that I would say is that, and thanks for
3: asking, is sure. that I really think that the discussion over whether poultry have to be vaccinated is going to heat up now, because mm-hmm. as somebody in the industry said to me, there is no other exit strategy. Yeah, And that is not a quick or calm discussion to right. be having. It's going to require some really fundamental examination of the, the underpinnings of the poultry industry. But there's also a really interesting thing that happened. Um, almost 20 years ago, there was There were two back-to-back avian flu outbreaks in Italy that were very, very destructive to poultry. Mm -hmm. And in Italy, and they were caused by wild birds, by a a particular migratory pattern that pooped out flu on poultry in Italy. Mm -hmm. And a very clever virologist there figured out a strategy to attach to vaccination that basically solved the problem that lies at the heart of the trade barriers, which is how do you tell if birds are silently infected or if they are vaccinated? Because if you vaccinate birds and then you go back and test them for surveillance to see if they've had an immune response in the bird, the immune response to infection and the immune response to vaccination are going to look like the same thing. They're going to have antibodies Mm. against flu either way. What this virologist figured out is that you can tweak the vaccine. You can actually switch the N in the H and N. This was not an H5N1 strain that was affecting Italy back 20 years ago. It was an H. They were H7N3 and H7N1, I think. Okay. Uh, They switched the N, they tinkered with the, the vaccine strain in the lab before they concocted the vaccine. And then they administered the vaccine to chickens. And then when they went back and tested the chickens to see if they had an immune response, that switched out N showed up in the antibodies that the birds had. So it was like a marker uh, saying, yep. oh, look, these birds are vaccinated. They would be safe to sell. They are not silently infected. They are not going to carry infection into trade networks. Right. This, this strategy is called DIVA, which stands for Differentiating <laughs> Infected and Vaccinated. Uh, and I like it. <laughs> so it kind of after the outbreaks were over in Italy, um, things kind of went quiescent on this idea because the the huge expansion of H five N one didn't really start until two thousand three. Uh And when it started, it started in countries like Vietnam that didn't have a lot of infrastructure or a lot of national funding that would create the kind of scientific backdrop that you'd need to make something like this work. So this concept has just kind of languished. I see. All of a sudden, people are starting to talk about it again. Now, it would require a lot of spinning up of. Um, particular sort of scientific infrastructure to do this, but it might be the sort of backdoor that allows vaccination to be instituted in the poultry industries. And that that would allow vaccination to happen. It would keep trade networks open. And most importantly, from my point of view, if vaccination can be brought in, it will eliminate an enormous, just incalculable amount of animal suffering. Because right. avian flu is a horrible disease in birds, Aww. in poultry and in wild birds, and um, the things that they do to poultry to kill them to keep avian flu from spreading—that's not are great also either.
1: Awful. I mean, they, the, <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty rugged. Yeah. The the
3: American veterinary community is at war within itself right now over some of these culling methods because yes, you have I've to kill that. them quickly, otherwise the flu is going to just keep boiling up. But killing. Animals quickly and killing them humanely, those two things are hard to balance. And so, if we could get vaccination in, we'd, we'd save the protein, we'd save the, um, the trade networks, we'd save the farm economies that are, yep. are that surround all of this poultry growing, and we'd prevent animal suffering as well.
1: Right, right. And let's also have the benefit that it will prevent the virus from continuing to mutate and mutate and mutate so that it then becomes, uh, you know, uh, adept at getting into our house. <laughs> right? Absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have to leave it there, Marin. but thank you so much. What an interesting discussion. I'm sorry we don't have more time for this. Um, uh, let people know where they can learn more about your work and read your latest articles. So
3: I thank you for that. So um, they, people can always find me at Maren dot com. But at Wired, um, I actually have my own author page. And let me see what the exact if you can just Google me, I think. But I'm like Wired dot com slash author slash Maren McKenna. And all of my stories are there. And as I look at it, there's an awful lot of bird flu stories on that. Right. now. Yeah. So check it
1: out, people, because it's something we all need to be paying attention to. This is major stuff for us. This is the food supply. So, you know, it behooves us all. to It's not something that's happening far away in Wisconsin. You know what I mean? It's like, this is right in our grocery stores, right on our plates. So uh, worth, worth talking about, worth thinking about. Thank you so, so much today, Marin. I really appreciate your time and I hope we'll be speaking again soon. I'll be keeping an eye on your page and we'll keep talking about the avian food. So well, thanks to my sponsors as always and to my listeners for tuning in. I appreciate your support each and every week and we'll see you next time. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.